You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 26th of August 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. Coming up today, a brace of bombastic blondes in Biarritz. And we're having very, very good meetings. So very far, we're going to do a fantastic deal once we clear up some of the, the obstacles in our path. But how fantastic is any such deal really likely to be for the UK, given that Boris Johnson clearly needs it more than Donald Trump does? My guests Terry Stiasny and James Rogers will discuss that and the day's other news, including what we learned from the G7 summit and Berlin's plans to cap rents. Plus, we'll also be hearing of a conference you don't want to miss out on. There are a few things more exciting than the International Conference on Very Large Databases, starting today in Los Angeles. If you're reading this in the wrong time zone, then tough luck. That gigaboat is already sailing. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Terry Stiasny, political journalist, and James Rogers, a senior lecturer in international studies at City University here in London. And we'll start with the recently concluded G7 in Biarritz, which by the standards of diplomatic conclaves involving US President Donald Trump seems to have passed off more or less without grotesque or ridiculous incident. There was apparently something like agreement on helping to fight the vast fires presently consuming the Amazon rainforest, and the biggest Trump-related fracas was one which might have been priced in, Trump suggesting, for who knows what reason, that Russia be readmitted to the G7, or the G8, as it would then once again become. Uh, Terry, let's start with what was sort of agreed on, which is that these fires in Brazil are bad and we should think about extinguishing them. Uh, President Bolsonaro doesn't think it's reasonable that the world gets involved in this, but should it even look like this is being taken out of Brazil's hands? Uh, well, I'm not sure in a practical sense quite how much you can take it out of Brazil's hands, since whatever, presumably they're saying that they're going to offer technical and financial support to uh, to Brazil's government to go and try and help put out the fires. And, you know, I'm not enough of an expert to know what, what precisely that would involve, apart from sort of planes dropping water onto them or something. Um I suppose what they've done is try to say, let's offer practical help, we'll see if that's accepted, rather than to try and do the bigger overarching statement and link it to climate change, which is something that they would know that Donald Trump would immediately oppose. So they're trying to say, well, let's literally firefight in this case, rather than say, this is a huge issue involving climate change, this needs to be tackled at a global level. So maybe, you know, the, the practical solution is the, is the nearest that you could get to an agreement on this. Uh, James, this complaint of Donald Trump's that Russia is no longer part of what is now the G7, and we should remind listeners that Russia used to be a member of what was the G8, but got slung out in 2014 after it invaded Ukraine. Um, Let's leave aside for the moment the question of who is making the suggestion. If somebody else other than Donald Trump was saying it would be better to have Russia in this than out of it, is that actually a terrible idea in and of itself? 
Well, not necessarily. I mean, obviously, this is a decision as, which, as you say, was taken in response um, to Russia's annexation of Crimea. Russia is a major player in global affairs, increasingly so in the Middle East in the last few years, of course. So Russia can't be ignored in the same way. That said, uh, um, the Kremlin has given a pretty sort of measured response to this suggestion this morning with a spokesman saying, look, it's going to take the invitation of more than one country in the G7 for us to come back in. We're not in a hurry. They're just trying to play it cool, I think, because, of course... Uh, for President Putin and his administration, if Russia were to be readmitted, it would be a sort of big signal that everything's forgotten over Crimea and we're going to move on from that. So um, it's it's not a terrible idea in the sense of, you know, Russia's role in global diplomacy, but in terms of the political acceptability of extending such an invitation, now it's quite hard to see how um, the European countries of the G7 would be willing to do that. I think it's also quite interesting to notice that two of the people at this meeting who've been most strongly opposed to it are people that grew up in the former Eastern Bloc. So Donald Tusk grew up, was an opposition figure in Poland uh, under the communist regime. Angela Merkel grew up uh, in Eastern Germany. Uh, the Canadian Foreign Secretary Christian Freeland has got a Ukrainian background. So a lot of these people have got a sort of personal history, if you like, that's going to say we are not going to be the people that allow Russia back in after it's been annexing parts of other countries. Do you think it's a statement worth making, though, that the G7 should remain a club of liberal democracies and, and you know basically maintain the idea that there is a, a benchmark of behaviours to which you must adhere or you don't get in? Uh, I think so. I think if it's go- you're going to continue having the G7 or G8 as opposed to the G20, uh, you've got to have something in common where you can hope to find agreement on certain values. That said, I mean, Macron has been trying to expand it to include other liberal democracies. I mean, he's invited you know, the Australians, he's invited India for talks, he's invited South Africa to come and join it. So he seems to be nudging it slightly more towards a, a, making it a broader grouping, but on, a, on an informal basis at the moment. So... Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think it's worth remembering as well that when Russia joined it, it was it was thought still, you know, widely thought to be on its way to becoming a liberal democracy when it joined. <laughs> Those it. were the days. Well, they were indeed <laughs> in the early 2000s. And of course, you know, President Putin very proudly hosted the G8 summit in his home city of St. Petersburg uh, in 2008. You know, it was a very, very different time in Russia-West relations. So it's a little bit hard to see how things can get back to there. Um, but again, you know, Russia is, is a particularly important diplomatic player, particularly in the Middle East, and, and, and cannot be ignored. So there is, I suppose, a case for inviting them back at some point. But it's very difficult, particularly given those personal connections which, to which um, Terry's made reference, to see how that can happen in the short term. Uh, James, this, this summit in Biarritz was always going to be something of an exercise in Trump management, mm. uh, especially after he flounced out of the previous G7 in Ottawa. Uh, what did you make of that? Most notably, President Macron sort of ambushing him on day one and, and whisking him off for a surprise lunch. Well, I think it, it was... I wonder, I wonder if all the sort of chancelleries have spent months of, in sort of Trump management exercises sure before this. I mean, there was... The, uh, expectations were downplayed before at a very high level about there not necessarily being a final community and so on and so on. They're sort of saying we're probably not going to agree on very much. But I think in terms of, um, you know, President Trump flouncing out, as you say, last year uh, from Canada uh, and pausing only to insult his host on Twitter, um, then probably, you know, this has probably been an improvement in that sense. But, you know, Donald Trump has sort of broken all the the diplomatic rules in his his years so far in office and will probably continue to do so. I've just come back from uh, a quite long visit to Denmark during which he announced that he wasn't going to be going (laughs) 
so you can imagine it was it was sort of there was a lot of amusement there in the Danish media about you know his response and his decision to conduct a fairly undiplomatic exchanges by social media rather than through 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 officials. We're back with more from James Rogers and Terry Stiasny in just a moment. But first, here is Monocle's Marcos Hippie with some of the other stories we're following today. Thanks, Andrew. It's been confirmed that a police officer fired a gun during yesterday's protests in Hong Kong. It is the first time that authorities have used a live round since demonstrations began in June. The violence suggests a dramatic escalation in tensions in the former British colony. A Dutch government agency says nearly 100 companies have relocated from Britain to the Netherlands ahead of Brexit. The Netherlands Foreign Investment Agency says another 300 companies worried about losing access to the European market are also considering the move. The US radio host and former lawmaker Joe Walsh has become the second Republican to challenge Donald Trump for next year's presidential nomination. Mr Walsh says the American public has become sick of the US president's tantrums. Trump has not responded to the comments. And finally, today's Monocle Minute reports on Google's plans to redevelop a large part of San Jose. The technology giant has promised to build 20,000 houses in the Bay Area within the next 10 years. For more on this story, head to monocle.com forward slash minute. Now back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Marcus. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with Terry Stiasny and James Rogers. Now, one participant at the G7 was the UK's recently anointed Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who has returned to a country in theory now 66 days from leaving the European Union, but not a great deal the wiser vis-a-vis how or indeed if that's actually going to happen. Speaking at Biarritz, Johnson said the chances of a no-deal Brexit were touch and go, which is something of a shortening of odds from his previous estimate of a million to one. Johnson also suggested that in such an event the UK might keep the 39 billion quid it had originally agreed to pay by way of settlement in Theresa May's thrice-thwarted withdrawal agreement. Uh, Terry, first of all, a leaked email is doing the rounds suggesting that Boris Johnson has asked Attorney General Geoffrey Cox uh, about the practicalities of proroguing Parliament. Is Johnson serious about proroguing Parliament or is this one of those emails that was written in order to be leaked? Uh, I think they're probably looking at, you know, all of the options that there are. Um, We're seeing so many different theories about when will prorogation happen? Will a vote of confidence happen? Uh, Will there be an election before October the 31st? Could there be an election called so that it happens, so that Brexit happens during the campaign, which I think would be sort of madness on on all sides? Uh, I think they, they would be very unlikely to do that, even if they were allowed to, partly because what tends to happen, what happens in September is Parliament comes back, then they all go away again for the party conference season. I think if you were Boris Johnson, you would not want sort of two or three weeks of party conference season to be dominated by every single opposition MP uh, and political figure standing up and saying, this is unconstitutional, this is a, you know, flagrant attempt to push through Brexit without uh, Parliament sitting. So that would be, you know, I don't think that would play into his favour, even if it stopped uh, you know, stop Parliament's actually voting on what was going on. Um, James, if such a thing did happen, if Boris Johnson did pull a stunt like this, and I for one don't think he actually would, although listeners are encouraged to frame that prediction in the context of my record for being completely wrong about everything uh, <laughs> these last few years, are the consequences imaginable? It would be 
fairly outrageous, wouldn't it? It would. And I think if you look at the way that things have developed over the weekend particularly, um, it really is starting to feel like um, there's an attempt um, by um, the British Prime Minister and indeed by some of his European counterparts uh, to apportion blame before this happens. I think there's, a, there's an expectation that no deal is very now very, very realistic. And I think there's an attempt to sort of say, well, it's going to be your fault or it's going to be your fault. Um, and I think also, you know, probably even now, even just days really into his prime ministership, he's probably, Boris Johnson's probably got an eye on the history books. He doesn't really want to go down in history with um, you know the 17th century King Charles the First, who still remembers <laughs> something of a tyrant um, for for his. He, he certainly doesn't want his career to end the way. No, he Charles certainly the doesn't. Want, did. For, for listeners may know that he was uh, executed <laughs> uh, rather publicly in Whitehall, which probably isn't going to happen to Boris Johnson. But I, I think it's it is. Um, you know, it is something I think which which probably concerns him. But I think also, you know, he he is trying to apportion blame beforehand. But he has, you know, he's he's made it so clear that he's willing to do this now. I don't think he's going to have any choice. It's going to be very difficult for him to blink. Uh, Terry, we did see a certain amount of expectation management from the prime minister about this while he was talking in Biarritz. Uh, he did offer reassurances that, in his view, come November first, we will not be beating each other up in the streets over the last rolls of toilet paper but he did say and this is an interesting phrase to pass i do not want at this stage to say that there won't be unforeseen difficulties does do, uh, <laughs> I uh, work uh, out uh, the double negatives yeah, exactly there will be foreseen difficulties ha, ha, yes <laughs> ha, having heard that are you, are you going to leave here and begin stockpiling Oh, I've, I've already got a stockpile. <laughs> I've been running it down, but I have a wine stockpile from France that I'm hoping will last. <laughs> My wine stockpiles have a tendency not to last very well. Uh, it's difficult because the more they play up the talk of no deal, the more you know, the more people are likely to stockpile, which then in turn increases the probability that there is panic buying, that <laughs> we do run out of food and veg and, and loo roll. Uh, and, you know... It's, I think people have got such short memories about this. I was, uh, you know, it's not that long ago that we had things like uh, the ban on British beef in Europe, that we had the foot and mouth crisis, that we had fuel crises in, you know, in the 90s and the early 2000s. And we forget how quickly the country did get in a complete state about it. So it's very difficult for Boris Johnson to, on the one hand, sort of say, no deal is now a possibility, and at the same time to say, but don't worry, it's all going to be fine. Um, we will move off this subject shortly, but before we do that, I do want to ask you each what has become the stock concluding question on this programme to discussions about Brexit. On November 1st, James, mm. where are we going to be, in or out? I suspect out, but I wouldn't say that with any certainty. I mean, you know, somebody who spent the early part of their journalistic career watching other countries in sort of turmoil and transition, I'd literally imagine that in middle age I'd watch my own tearing itself apart, but that's the way that it's turned out. I I think probably out. I mean, the Conservatives have made this such an article of faith um, and, you know, they do have a degree of support in the country. If the opinion polls are to be believed, one conducted for the Sunday Times newspaper over this weekend gave the Conservatives and the Brexit Party over 40% combined. But there will be political consequences to this, um, and it's going to be very difficult. So there's a, they've got at least, at very least, a substantial minority who want them to be it, take the UK outcome what may. But there will be political consequences. There's a lot of people in this country who still don't want to leave, even if they accept it's going to happen. So, But I suspect on November the 1st, we will probably be out, but I won't put it any more strongly than probably. Terry? I'm still thinking probably out on the 1st of November, probably with no deal, partly because 
having I have thought that you know Boris Johnson was the one person who would be able to do a complete U-turn and say, oh, sorry, chaps, uh, changed my mind. We will have an extension, or we will do something else. I think that the more he repeats this, mm. we are out on the thirty-first of October, come what may, uh, the harder it is even for him to sort of front up and, and do an about turn on it. Okay, well, let's move finally along to Berlin. Within living memory, it was a city to which people fled when they wearied of soaring rents elsewhere in Europe, especially London and Dublin. This has had the inevitable consequence on Berlin's rents, and the city has now been echoing to the aggrieved clamour of gentrifiers complaining about the effects of gentrification. Berlin city government has heard this and has proposed a law to cap rents on certain properties. This follows a five-year rent freeze, which was announced in June. Um, James, the idea of uh, rent controls, rent caps, it sounds incredibly appealing. Um, does it ever actually work? Well, there's lots of examples where it doesn't, aren't there? Public housing in big cities all over the world is often sublet and um, and difficult to trace. And, and the sort of the more um, forceful elements of the markets persist, however hard the authorities try to to get to to regulate them. That said, I mean, I think it is it is true. I think certainly in this city and the other big cities of Europe and elsewhere that you know the housing market to a large extent is not really working. I mean, I think I was trying to look this report up just before um, when I was preparing for the program but it was a few years ago the United Nations said that for the first time in human history there are more people living in cities than Mm. on the land and that's a trend which is only continuing so uh, and you can see with the difficulty of finding you know somebody who who, uh, spends their time teaching students and the great difficulty that young people studying or starting their working lives have to find somewhere affordable so in that sense you know this I think this is a a positive initiative but yes you're right to, to question how far it can actually be imposed in practice. I mean, it, it's a thing, obviously, that appeals as an idea, uh, Terry, to, to politicians or a thing to, to say that they're in favour of because nobody's going to get returned to office if they go out and say, I think rent should be much higher. Um, but every, almost every economist who's looked into it thinks they're bad. Uh, Asar Lindbeck, the Swedish, Swedish economist and, and no you know, free, mar- free market fundamentalist, he uh, was once quoted as saying, next to bombing, rent control seems in many cases to be the most efficient technique so far known for destroying cities. Mm. I mean, I think, you know, it's really interesting looking at, particularly in Berlin, because uh, I lived there when it's about 20, 20 years ago now, uh, and the places everybody really wanted to live were the old Berlin apartment buildings, which are often gorgeous with a big sort of courtyard in the middle uh, that had all been renovated since the wall came down. Uh, those are now the most expensive places. And what the German press is saying today is that if you introduce rent controls, it actually benefits people who are living in the nicest areas, mm. in the nicest, most renovated, beautiful old apartment blocks. The ones that where it doesn't affect you so much are the people living in the outskirts of the old east or and, you know, who aren't paying that high rents anyway, but aren't living in great places. And they're suggesting that it will mean that landlords don't invest to improve uh, the properties that there are. I mean, Berlin's such a strange place because... Obviously, housing there was so subsidised, both by the West, in the because people didn't want to go and live there unless they wanted to be a bit off grid and not, you know, not going to the army and so forth. And people in the East, it was obviously, you know, subsidised. Rents were subsidised there, uh, and then 
there was it was a much bigger city than there were than, were, than it had a population. And now that's changed because people have come into Berlin, and that's why there is now a shortage of housing mm. in a place that was always had too much. So I don't think it will make more creativity because there'll be less turnover, and it's a way of kind of privileging the older residents who've been there for a long time you know, by lowering the rents in nice places, uh, and is not necessarily the best way to have a kind of a healthy housing market. James, does the lesson of Berlin though perhaps offer some solution or an idea for a solution to uh, rental crises elsewhere? I mean, I, I did not, as Terry did, actually join the flight to Berlin, but I know plenty of people who did, and a, a lot of those people left London because they couldn't afford to live in London, and you're absolutely right that for younger people and people starting out, it, it, it is incredibly difficult, and I do speak from the blessedly fortunate position of somebody who went through that phase in London when London, weirdly, was actually quite a cheap city to live in. But is it not the fact that cities like London and now like Berlin become expensive because they're too centralised? Shouldn't governments be working at spreading their country more widely around so there's reason for people to go and live in other places? Well, I think that they would. And it's curious in this in this age when we're sort of more connected than ever virtually that there is still this real stress on personal contact still and being in a particular kind of place. Um, and I think, you know, I think many, many governments would like to do that if we think of the UK. You know, there's all sorts of initiatives have been discussed and, and launched to develop um, the, the north of England in particular, the, the northern so-called northern powerhouse, to develop the economy there. But still, you know, the economic might of this country is concentrated in London and the southeast. And I think in this particular case, is another thing to take into account, which you know we've read. You know, with the summer holiday season has occasioned lots of those um, stories in, in the newspapers and elsewhere about over tourism in certain mm. cities of the world. Um, Berlin is a tourist destination. It's and one could well imagine that if uh, a less scrupulous person were able to land themselves a, a rent-controlled apartment, they're making quite a tidy sum on Airbnb, which is something that the city council could probably do very little about. There's these aspects of the new economy which aren't taken into account with rent controls like this, I don't think. Just a final quick thought on ter- this, on this, Terry. You, you mentioned having joined that decampment to Berlin yourself. Is, is it just not the case that it will just be some other city next? And that's just yeah. the way these and things I was work. Say, I didn't sort of decamp there for the sheer fun of it. I was getting paid to go and work there. So, <laughs> I, you know, uh, so I got my rent paid. So, uh, But it was still, you couldn't afford everything there. Um, I mean, it's interesting. Yeah, people will go elsewhere. And one of the reasons people are moving to Berlin, you say about, you know, it, it, Germany, it, you move to Berlin because it's a lot cheaper than living in Hamburg or Munich or Frankfurt, where you know things are astronomically expensive. So yeah, maybe people will go to I don't know Dresden or I don't know where else would be, yeah, cheaper and more up and coming and and fun to live. Terry Stiasny and James Rogers, thank you both. In a moment, why size matters, at least when it comes to really big databases. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. For a celebration of all things print, tune in to The Stack, every week on Monocle 24, featuring expert analysis, the view of magazine veterans, and a look at what's flying off newsstands around the world. The Stack goes beyond the headlines to reveal the inner workings of the print industry. Our paper is incredibly expensive and it's imported from Italy. We decided the paper is too important. It's just too important that it looks good, that it's consistent. It creates the impression that we've been around for a very, very, very long time. Listen to The Stack and hear Fernando Augusto Pacheco in conversation with our favourite editors. And get the latest industry insights from our own editor-in-chief, Tyler Brulé. 
The Stack, Monocle24's weekly print industry review and analysis show, airs every Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Make it part of your must-listen lineup, live or on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. And finally today, a view from our editorial floor via the International Conference on Very Large Databases. There are a few things more exciting than the International Conference on Very Large Databases, starting today in Los Angeles. If you're reading this in the wrong time zone, then tough luck. That gigaboat is already sailing. The conference starts today, but does run until Thursday if you fancy hopping on a plane. Since long before Monocle started its own annual Quality of Life conference, we've taken an interest in how other companies package their brands, talk to their customers, and remain not just relevant, but sold out soon after tickets are issued. You can smirk, but the data guys are looking at a full house, inspecting, amongst other things, data management and information systems research for the conference today. They may well be looking at the potential user saturation of this very news bulletin, or the performance of your Instagram feed and having a good old giggle. One thing's for sure, though, we might well be reporting from next year's instalment, and with a straight face. A file? Oh, they'll have one on all of us. See you there, taking notes, next year. That's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Marcus Hippie and researched by Yolin Goffan and Louis Allen. Our studio managers were Bill Lutie and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of Monocle on Culture. Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. Monocle.